All right. I trust that you have your worksheets. Well, here we are, week eight of 12. And we're going to get into this here real quick. So let's first, let's talk to God and then we'll get back into God's word. Pray with me, please. God, thank you very much for the opportunity that we have to be here to study your word, to look to see what it says about our opposition. Make us wise tonight and let us be, as you said, shrewd, uh, to be very careful about how we live and thoughtful about what we're up against. Thank you for our study thus far, and I pray that tonight be a great addition uh, to thinking through the Christian life from the perspective of, uh, as you so often do, a warrior, a fighter, one who must deal with and respond to the things that are trying to detract and trip up and tempt and dissuade us from following you. So God, make this a great night. Please give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see things that are in your word. Illuminate the text and just let this all come together in a way that's very helpful for our Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Study of the names of Satan last week. We got into it, and maybe you remember, it's one of the interesting words, one of the few words that we have that actually gets transliterated from Hebrew right into Greek, Satan, Satanus, right into Latin, Satanus, and right into English, Satan. And since you studied that just a week ago, the word Satan means what? Adversary. The most common name for our spiritual enemy is adversary. It means opponent, one who's our antagonist, one who is our enemy. We speak of him that way because he is our enemy, because we are kids of his ultimate enemy. And uh, that, just by the nature of his name, ought to put us back a little bit on our heels, thinking, okay, we've got a very strong, formidable foe who is out to do something that is all tied up in his name, oppose us, be our adversary, antagonize us to be our enemy. And uh, now what we need to do is to figure out uh, how he might do that. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says we would not be outwitted by Satan. And he's addressing a particular problem in Corinth of unforgiveness. But he says here, our unforgiveness that we sometimes harbor toward each other. He says, for we are not ignorant of his designs is how the ESV puts it. Some translations translate this word schemes. Another good word might be strategies. It's based on the word to think. It really has to do with how he thinks, his thoughts, his plans. And if Paul can say that, certainly any Christian who who attempts to mature in the Christian life ought to sit down, as we're doing tonight, and think through his strategies, his plans. We know he's our opponent. We've seen a bit of the breadth of that in the names that we've studied, but now we need to think about what are his strategies? What are the ways that he wants to attack us, to oppose us? We're going to talk about three areas tonight, and uh, we'll start with, uh, we'll go from something out here, which is us as a church, and we'll move in more specifically to your life. But let's start with Satan's agenda for our church. Now that should make us uh, a little uh, trepidatious. It does put us, I hope, in a posture to think, wow, does Satan care about our church? Well, he particularly, I don't know, as, as a person and an individual, he may not, but he certainly cares about the church and the, the stronger and the more uh, impact the church wants to make against the gates of hell. Certainly we get uh, the attention of more and more of his henchmen, his, his demonic uh, helpers, if you will, are adversaries uh, on a lesser scale than Satan himself. But his strategy, as revealed in the Bible, ought to be something we ought to itemize. So we've got a few things. One, two, three, four, five things. Uh, there were several, but I picked the top five things as I went through uh, studying what the text says about Satan's strategies to think through what does he want to do uh, to the church in general and our church in particular, or what do his henchmen following his directives want to do? The first place I'd like to take you to is Revelation chapter 2, uh, beginning, uh, actually we can get a little context here, I guess, but the, the, the heart of it is in verse number 10 as it describes Satan's activity toward a church that came to mind when I walked through the doors and I smelt Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, because... Uh, that is where I ate Kentucky Fried Chicken in the city of Smyrna. 
which is now Izmir, Turkey. Some of you, I don't know if you went on the footsteps of Paul trip with us, but I was so happy to see right there on the wharf, if you went with us, a KFC. So I went in after eating a lot of strange Turkish food and uh, pigged out on Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, Smyrna. That's a happy memory for me, but it wasn't a happy prognostication, prophecy from Christ, as he says in verse 8, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, which is probably the preaching pastor, write these words, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is Rev 2, verse 8, verse 9 now. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, but you're being, you're being persecuted. And I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, for behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. But be faithful, even look, unto death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now he has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Uh, Here is a promise, uh, at least for this church, which is indicative of what Satan wants to do, I think, to every good Bible-believing church that is genuinely rich, uh, and that is he wants to persecute the church. He'd like to take outside forces, which is indeed what happened for two centuries in Smyrna. Uh, Maybe you remember Polycarp, some of these famous people in the early church. Uh, They were persecuted, killed in this city, and uh, even in the first century, as Jesus writes here in the mid-90s A.D., Uh, They were being persecuted with a real spike in persecution from the outside, from the government, from those that hated uh, them. And uh, all you have to do is be a part of a good church that is going to be committed to the Word of God, that's not going to bend on the Word of God, that wants to be faithful to what God's Word says, and uh, you can just watch in time, stay there long enough, you will experience persecution, not just against the individuals, but against the corporate church, against the church itself, and outsiders will persecute us. Now, we have been relatively, on the scale of persecution, uh, blessed because ours has been mostly verbal, uh, but I do believe that, as this text says, every church should be ready to be faithful unto death. Are you ready for that? <laughs> we often sit around and talk when we talk about parking problems and waiting lists. We say, you know, when persecution breaks out, um, we, we, we will, we'll see who the church of Compass Bible Church really is, right? We'll see the core because those are those that are really with us, able to say, we're not just checking this out. This isn't a part-time thing. I'm committed to Christ even unto death. And you just need to know this. It's not as though everything is calm in the spiritual world. It's that he is ready and willing and able to attack this church and any other church like ours. Uh, It's just by God's providence and protection, as here he shows he is sovereign over how much persecution comes to the church. All I want to do as I think about his strategy for our church is say, are we ready? I mean, I know it's morbid, but it's it's uh, not a morbid thing in my heart to go and look at every time I see or hear of a news story where Christians are persecuted. If any of it is captured on video, I want to watch it. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And I have to ask myself, every time I I see a beheading or I see somebody getting stoned or or someone's uh, uh, torso being uh, stabbed because they're Christians or being dragged through the street and beaten, I just need to renew my commitment as a follower of Christ. I know that's what Satan wants to do to the church in Orange County. He'd like to do that at the church in Cincinnati. He'd like to do that at church in Canada. Are we ready to say uh, we're going to be faithful unto death? You need to understand with me that this is an ever-present reality of Satan's strategy to persecute the church. Praise God every day that goes by that we're not. Uh, And when we're called names, uh, which we are regularly, uh, Jesus told us what to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Did he not? Rejoice, be glad, counted worthy, right? He did that to the prophets. Uh, Not that we're masochistic about it, but we're certainly glad that we are at least being seen as enough of a problem to be uh, at least verbally persecuted. But hold on, it's getting worse. Uh, it's, it's, there's no special protection on the United States of America or no guarantee that we won't face persecution even before the great persecution of the tribulation that takes place 
but that's another topic. How about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? That was a bad way to start a message of any kind. You're going to be persecuted. Are you ready to die for this? Good question to ask ourselves, though, every now and then, isn't it? Another strategy that he has for our church is this, which is a bit more practical. Now, I know this is a big player, the Apostle Paul. I know he's coming to do big things with the church at Thessalonica. I know that when they get together, a lot of great things happen that may not happen when you and I get together on the scale or to the magnitude that it does with the Apostle Paul. But read this with me, beginning in verse 17, and recognize, as we're told in the Bible, Satan's strategy here as it relates to the players of the church getting together. Paul is a particular, uh, particularly loved and uh, valued part of the history of Thessalonica and, and the church there. He says, But since we were torn away, bereft from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, I mean, we're with you, we think about you, we pray for you, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We see this in a lot of Paul's epistles. We're, we're trying to get there. He says it to the, to the Corinthians. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, underline this, but Satan hindered us. Okay? Now know this. Now I know we could put this under the heading of ministry perhaps. You can say Satan's strategy certainly, we can see this on several levels, is to keep us apart. Is to keep us not coming together. Not having the parts of the body that are gifted to minister to one another together in one place. And to cop out and to say, well, we'll just watch it on the stream or we'll get the MP3 or we'll iPod it. It's not about just instruction. The church has to assemble together. One of the concerns of the early church was don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I mean, that's important. And we should do it all the more as we see the day approaching, right? You know that verse. And when it comes to our getting together, just know this. Next time it's something that comes up in your schedule right before you're making that decision to come or you're intending to come, just know this is more than just the you know, happenstances of life. Satan wants nothing more than the, to keep the church apart. I mean, it is not a victory for us as a church that has thousands of people on our roster to put together something where we teach the theology of the Bible and only get you know, a, a fifth or, or, a, or a, a tenth of our church to show up. I mean, this is not just a weekend event. We should grieve. We should recognize there's a strategy. There's a ploy. There's a scheme. There's a device of the enemy to try and keep our church apart. We need to fight it. We need to know that we're in a battle just to gather together and to minister to one another and to do it in person. Letter C, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn to this text. If he can't keep us apart, and if in God's grace and by the strength of the Spirit, you battle to be here, regardless of the green goosebump that you get of good feeling when you come and you say, I need to go, it's what the Bible says, I'm going to get together... Even if we get persecuted or even if I get made fun of, I'm going to go. Once we do get together, I guarantee you this, Satan's got a strategy once we get together. And that is this. Look at verse 23. We'll read three, four of these verses. Have nothing to do, Paul writes to the pastor, Timothy, with foolish and ignorant controversies. For you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must be kind to everyone. He must be able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Big part of the Christian life. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape, here it is, the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. Context, church, in the church. You're going to get into quarrels there. That's your office. That's your family. That's the place you do your work. And in that, there's going to be temptations to get engaged in quarrels and controversies. And all of that is going to happen in the context of the church. And according to verse 26, the diabolos, the, the slanderer, is involved in trying to make that all happen. Let's put it this way. He's trying to promote conflict among us. He's trying to promote conflict among us. Now, obviously, if we're all about the truth, if we have a heretic in our midst, if we have someone who's an unrepentant, immoral person that wants to thumb their nose at the truth of God's Word, then we've got a problem. That's a conflict we've got to have. But it's the kind of conflicts that he says here are ignorant controversies. 
And there's a lot of ignorant controversies that Satan is wanting to drum up in our hearts, in our minds, in our home fellowship groups, at Compass Night, amongst all the people who gather together, who fight the temptations to not gather. Once we get here, he wants there to be conflict. And you just need to know that's his strategy. If he can't keep us apart, he wants us arguing. He wants us wasting all of our energy working on each other trying to usurp and and to insist on a particular perspective or idea that we have. It's amazing how often I see in the church people that I think have perfectly good minds and gifts and skills to be used to advance the kingdom, evangelize people, and disciple people in the church, and all they do is spend their time spinning their wheels in ignorant controversies. Don't let it happen. Understand that when you're getting drawn into that, this is a temptation from Satan being invited when it's teed up right there and you are tempted to be involved in that. Be careful. You've got to ask yourself, is this a biblical controversy or is this an ignorant controversy? It's a time to engage. You must engage. There's times when the fool is spouting his folly and you need to answer him. And then there's times, what does Proverbs say, where you shouldn't answer a fool according to his folly. Be careful of Satan's strategy in the church. He would love to have this church embroiled in controversy, which, of course, he does. And it is. And um, it happens a lot. As a matter of fact, uh, it's the kind of controversy that shouldn't even exist. And I didn't have this down anywhere, but can go to 2 Corinthians. Uh, I know we know this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Satan is all over this text, by the way, in terms of the warnings. Look at verse 3. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Okay? So now we're going to get into things in this chapter that have to do with doctrinal error, things that should be clear on the page of the Scripture, but there are people in our church saying different things. Verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if, you re- or if you receive a different spirit other than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel other than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And, uh, drop down to verse, we dealt with this one already, 13. For such men, he says, are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They're disguising themselves as apostles of, of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan himself, our adversary, our opponent, disguises himself as an angelite. So it is no surprise that, here it is, these are people in the church, his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. If you think you drive on the campus of our church and you think, great, we're in a safe zone now, right? You're wrong. This is a focal point of his of Satan's attention. It's the, it's the battleground for not only ignorant controversy, but I think about the things that, that spark controversy in the church, doctrinal controversy that, that, shouldn't, that should be obvious. It's going on right now in our church. It seems like every time we get a good spot or God opens up a door or there are good things on the horizon, what happens is we get hit with another wave of this. I've been dealing with this for hours just this week. Doctrinal controversies in our church that people should not be having. It's plain as day in the Bible, but they've been persuaded by people that according to this text are servants of the enemy. Or as it says there in in 2 Timothy, they are held captive by Satan to do the will of the enemy. Conflict. Satan's strategy to persecute us. Satan's strategy to keep us apart, to promote conflict. Letter D. Acts 26. Let's look at this text together. Acts chapter 26. This is Paul reciting his testimony. What do I have? Verse 16 through 18. Let's look at that. He's telling Agrippa about his testimony. Now Jesus speaks to him and says, But arise and stand on your feet, Jesus says, for I have appointed you. This is Acts 26, 16. Right? appointed you for this purpose. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me, seen me and, and in those in which I will appear to you. Mm, let me read that again. But, ar- <laughs> Do better. but arise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. That's a tough sentence. Call the ESV translators. 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now here's the verse. To open their eyes so that they may turn from, the, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Great picture. Paul called to be an evangelist. He says, here's the problem. Power of Satan. That's who they're under. John says that. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 said that Satan is blinding the eyes of the unbelievers when Paul preaches. Jesus said if we're going to advance the kingdom, it's like batting back the gates of hell, the dominion of Satan. And here it says we're going to face this, or at least Paul is as an evangelist, and we are too, when the church tries to do evangelism. So let's put this down. Satan's strategy for us, if we are going to get together, and if we're not going to bite and devour each other, here's one thing he doesn't want to happen, anybody else joining the church. He doesn't want anybody saved. He doesn't want anybody reaching repentance and faith. The books we hand out at the Fall Fest, he doesn't want anybody to read those. He doesn't want anybody to come to conversion and, and stand here on this stage and get baptized and for all of you to clap that they're now Christians. Satan doesn't want that. He's working actively to oppose that. And we need to recognize that. Evangelism is not just a human endeavor where we just see if we can sell our philosophy to someone. It is a spiritual battle with an active opponent with power in this text, dunamis, power uh, over these folks. So he's going to fight our evangelism. He's going to fight, get us to fight each other. He's going to fight to keep us apart. And he's going to have the world fight against us. One more, just to round out the strategy against our church. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I dealt with this about 15 minutes ago before I got up here. He's active in this, in our church and in every church that preaches the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now that's an overstatement, or I should say an understatement, because they were already departing. Paul says that in 1 and 2 Timothy, that he's got folks bailing out. They're leaving. Okay? And he says, though, this is going to be a trend in the end of, of time. They're going to devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity it says, of liars whose consciences have been seared, who forbid marriage in this case and require abstinence from food that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There's a lot of reasons they leave, usually drawn away by bad doctrine, but we need to put this down. If he's got us here and we're not devouring each other and we are winning a few people to Christ, certainly if the front door is working, he wants to get the back door wide open and people leaving and fleeing the church. And this is happening for any and every reason conceivable. I, I, I can't. I wish you could sit through our meetings, you don't want to, and just see us deal with, as shepherds of the church, people who, who leave. You've got every reason under the sun. Uh, if it's not one thing, it's another. And none of them, as I look at what the Scripture says, is a good reason. Now, there are some good reasons to leave a church. No doubt about that, right? But most of the reasons that we hear are ridiculous they are satan at work to draw people out from hurt feelings to the times of the service to the lights aren't quite the right color to you know whatever it might be they we've got the and it's just one day after day after day and, and I'm telling you, people stay members of country clubs a lot more faithfully or members of the Boy Scouts or, or whatever it might be. It's the church has got a magnetic pull out the back door. And it's not just our church, it's every church, particularly churches that are preaching the Word of God. Satan is active in trying to get people to depart from the faith, depart from that adherence to the true teaching of God's Word. Look at that list. This would be a good prayer list just for you to invert. I mean, you want to do some spiritual praying or praying in the Spirit, as Paul put it, then do this. Pray for the things that in the spiritual world we're being fought against every day in the church. You need to pray for protection, letter A. You need to pray that people will come and faithfully gather together. You need to pray that we, we are peaceful and we get along with each other. You need to pray that our evangelism is successful. And you need to pray that when people get here, unless there's a good, solid biblical reason or some reason beyond the control of, of you know, a person's uh, career or whatever it might be, that, that they stick with us, that they stick around. 
that they stay. Five major satanic strategies aimed at your church. There are some more strategies aimed at your home that the Bible tells us about, and we would be foolish to be ignorant of them. We need to be aware of these because the Bible shows us that these are his strategies. Let's look at the very first strategy Satan ever employed on human beings, Genesis 6. I'm sorry, Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. Very first strategy we ever see Satan employing on human beings. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the man, did God actually... Correct me if I read any of this wrong. What did he do? To the woman. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, a couple things I need to establish here. If you read the creation narrative, which you all have, you'll understand that God creates the man. He creates a marriage by creating a woman and bringing that woman into the man's life as what's called, and is so insulting to modern women, a helpmate. Someone who comes alongside and together they're made complete, but she is there as a, as a helpmate to the man. She's his partner of equal value and worth, but there's an order and a structure to everything God creates. And Satan knows exactly what to do. If he is going to mess up this thing, he goes right after the order, which the New Testament refers to elsewhere, that this is clearly a usurping of the place of Adam's leadership in his marriage. It is something that happens and continues to happen and is promised to happen even in the curse that follows that there will be an inbuilt temptation and a propensity for in the home the dad's or the husband's leadership to be usurped. You need to watch out for this. You want to talk about Satan working as the prince of the power of the air? You want to talk about him influencing the culture? For me to even say what I've just said is scandalous, even to Christians, because they've been so indoctrinated by our satanic culture. They just can't even handle the fact that there is male leadership in the home. It's the way God established it. He can establish it any way He wants. That's how He establishes the home. That dad is the leader. That the husband is the leader. And that is usurped every day in the home and in Christian homes because we are so influenced, or as Romans 12 puts it, conformed to the world. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You're not going to find anything in the Bible except the paradigm of a kind of order, a structural administrative order in the church and in the home that is gender-specific. And that is attacked on a daily basis. If you look through the Scripture, the strategy of the enemy is to turn a marriage and a home upside down by usurping dad's leadership. And dad is all the more happy to do it unfortunately. And we work at that. In our church, we work at that. We hire the best, you know, men's leadership we can find. And we work real hard to get 150 guys here to a men's Bible study so they can step up and be leaders in their home and raise their kids and, and be the kind of leader that God calls them to. We do all that we can to make that happen. We call the same kind of meeting for women, and we have seven to 800 women show up. Do you think that's just happenstance? Do you see the problem, even with that in the church, how Satan wants to attack that kind of, of dad-husband leadership in, in the home? I've probably said enough. We need to take just bare, small teaspoons of this doctrine at a time, but... And uh, we cry foul, but it's not because the Bible's unclear. It's because we have become, become so blinded by our culture. And it's terrible. It's terrible. And think about how we're raising our kids. Do you know, and I heard this stat, I have not corroborated it, but I heard it on a major network television news show this week. I stopped it on TiVo, went back, played it three times to make sure I heard it correctly. 
Okay? I need to corroborate the study and find out where it is. But it was after I had just come back from preaching to our singles retreat down in, in, uh, in uh, San Diego and tried to show them that this concept of moving from adolescence into this weird, you know, modern no man's land of singleness that is supposed to be this time of discovery and independence and adventure and kind of seeing the world and discovering myself and finding myself is, is a modern creation and not a biblical reality. And, and, and as I fought against that and talking about how like everything in terms of like game consoles are marketed to and successfully sold to, both games and consoles, to the people that are anywhere from 18 to 35 years old, and they spend on average 11 hours a week playing games, okay? Now go back in time and see if you can find any other generation where you had a majority of people that were pressing their late 20s and early 30s playing games 11 hours a week, right? This is unprecedented. With that in my mind, having recently done all that kind of teaching, I come back and watch the news on my off day to discover this stat. That for the first time, and this was a study done, they said, between 2000 and 2005, that single men, right, 18 to 34, okay, that there, are, there is, boy, I wasn't planning on quoting this. I want to get this right. I need to look this up. But I believe it was 54, either 54 or 57% of them are living at home with their parents, okay? Single people, single males from 18 to 34. 54 or 57%, I'll verify it once I corroborate the study. Guess how many women in that age group are living at home with their parents? Half, okay? You, you do know that more women graduate from high school than men. More women get bachelor's degrees than men. More women now get master's degrees than men. When it comes to stepping up, getting ready, being educated and trained to face life and the world and to be a leader in our culture for the first time, the disparity is night and day between young men growing up in our culture and young women growing up in our culture. <laughs> and, and you've got to have some sympathy for the single young women in our culture looking for a man. You've got to have some sympathy for that. No amens from any single women here. Keep, keep you know, we don't need you to say amen to that, but can you at least feel for them? When you have most men who are pushing 30 playing games 11 hours a week, and you've got 50 plus percent living with mommy and daddy, and mommy's bringing in underwear that she's freshly folded from the laundry to give to a guy with hair all over his chest, living in the back bedroom... Are you kidding me? If you don't think Satan has worked hard to usurp the authority of dad in a home, he does it starting with kids and childhood and high school graduates and young single men. Time for these guys to step up. We're working hard at it. We're trying. Starting with our junior high ministry, we're trying to make sure these kids know that the time for games is when you're a kid. What if I told you that? What if I got up here and I told you I spend 11 hours, this is what I told the singles now, what if I told you I spend 11 hours a week playing video games? Would your view of me change at all? I think it would, wouldn't it? You'd think, wow, with the church and you do some teaching, you write books, you, you lead the staff. How do you have time for that? And the answer is I don't. I don't have time for that. And yet we have a whole generation of people growing up who are supposed to be the next leaders in the next generation of our homes that feed on that. Watch the commercials, right? You see, they, that, this is who's marketed to stay perpetual children. And then when they get married, what do the commercials show in the married relationships? Right? The man's the dorky, sorry. And the wife is all together, she's the leader. Find me one where that's inverted. You can't, as it's been said. You find on television a man belittling and insulting a woman it's a lawsuit. When you find a woman belittling and insulting a man, it's a hallmark card, right? Is it not? Men are supposed to be men. They're supposed to lead. Unfortunately, Satan's agenda for the home is that that does not happen. 
And I, I can't stand the men who, oh, my wife, she's just so intuitive. You know, the Bible says if your wife has a theological question, that she should be able to come to you and ask you, not write the pastor an email, okay? That's what the Bible says. You should be so engaged in your spiritual life, not call of duty, right? I'm trying to find somebody in the room that I can preach to tonight. Uh, <laughs> that you can answer your wife's theological questions. All right. Step off my soapbox now. <laughs> Just fresh on my heart, though. Wow. First Corinthians 7. Satan's got another strategy for your home. Not only to emasculate dad, make sure that mom runs the show. Which, by the way, ladies, don't you want a guy that you can rely on and trust in? Wouldn't that be better than feeling like you're married to your son? That just can't be very romantic or very... It just can't be very fulfilling. Sorry, still on point one. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. The husband should give his wife conjugal. You don't hear that, but on like prison documentaries. But the ESV went for it. Her conjugal rights. Okay? I mean, let's just read it. The husband should have sex with his wife. And likewise, the wife should have sex with her husband okay for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but the wife does do not deprive one another except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer that's your only out for having regular sexual conjugal relationships with your spouse is that you're having a little prayer fast Okay? Then come together again so that, here's our enemy, Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay? Let her be. Satan's agenda for your home is to make sure that your marriage is littered with, punctuated by, or at least get one good adulterous affair in while you're married. That's his strategy. That's desperately what he wants. Because, of course, the marriage is supposed to be this picture of the fidelity between Christ and His church. He wants that, as He said over there in 2 Corinthians 11, that pure devotion to Christ so that we wouldn't be tempted, enticed by the evil one away from that. That should be a picture of our marriages. So His job is to prompt adultery whenever He can. And adultery, by the way, if you remember the teaching we did recently on looking at that series about you've heard it said, but I say, and we, we enlisted that trying to understand the, 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 the uh, Sermon on the Mount where he always does that. The whole point of that is not a new set of laws. The whole point of that, the thing about, you know, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you've committed adultery with her in her heart. The point is this, that the command of adultery is not some pillar, some post that as long as you don't touch that, you're doing Okay. It is a law that directs us in the right direction. And the direction is fidelity. The direction is loyalty. The direction is sexual fidelity to our spouse. Anything that doesn't move us in that direction is a move away from it, and it's sinful. And that's the point. Whatever is going to move us in the direction of infidelity is sin. That's what Jesus is trying to say. And people are often saying and playing with the Bible a game where as long as I don't touch that, that prohibition, I'm okay. Satan's job is to get into your home, to undermine dad's leadership, to try and make sure that there's infidelity in the marriage. That's be great. That's what he wants. 1 Samuel 15. Go back to this one. 1 Samuel 15. Saul and Samuel and the Amalekites. Agag. If I had a dog, that's, I'd call him Agag. It's a good name. Come here, Agag. Agag, the king of the Amalekites. God often used Israel. It's like sometimes he used Assyria, sometimes he used Babylon, sometimes he used Egypt. He used nations as his arm of retribution. If a nation was so out of control, he'd use another nation, and in warfare they would wipe those people out. And sometimes they were such sinners and so deplorable in God's sight, God wanted them all destroyed, no prisoners, don't take any of their stuff, devoted all over to destruction. 
That's what was called for here. And in verse 18, Samuel, the prophet, is speaking to Saul, the king, and he says, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Kill them. Wipe them out. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You took their stuff. You took prisoners. You weren't supposed to. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. And I brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, back. I know, but you know, come on. But I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But I, the people, they took the spoil. Yeah, you're right, they did. They took a few camels in the driveway and all that. I understand that. Some sheep, some oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. But they did that to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Interesting, he's the Lord your God now. But yeah, we're going we're gonna, to, all the good stuff we got here, the, the Mercedes that we drove up in, the gold rings we found, the Rolexes, all, we're, just gonna get, we're all going to sacrifice them to the Lord anyway. Don't worry. Verse 22, famous lines, you know these words. Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Right? Think about that. A lot of things we might justify thinking, well, God, there's some advantage to you or your kingdom or your church or your people. No, no, no. Obey God, even, if, even to your sacrifice. Right? Obey is, to, is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of, what's the word? Divination, witchcraft, connection with demons or Satan. Right? And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. Okay, this is into Satan's territory here. And what does he call it? Rebellion. Okay? Taking the rules and disobeying them. Inciting rebellion in your home. I don't think it's cute, and you shouldn't either, when a mom tells a toddler to do something and the toddler acts defiantly and shines on a mom, even if it's no damage or hurt to anything or anyone. It is dabbling in Satan's territory. According to a text like this, not doing what was told by the authority. In this case, Samuel told, he was the authority, told Saul what to do. Saul did not do it. He had a reason for not doing it. He rationalized his disobedience. And here Samuel says, it's like you're dealing with demons now. You're in the category of divination, witchcraft. Really? Rebellion is like divination. And you need to see this in your home. He wants nothing more than for you to be so tired or worn out that you see your kid defy you. That's what he wants. He wants your kids to be rebellious. He wants to incite disobedience and rebellion. Moms and dads, you are the authority in your home. Your kids are called by God to obey your voice, to obey your directives. When they don't, Satan stands back and applauds. It is his strategy. And I, I don't know why we're so think it's cute. It's not cute. It's not cute. It should grieve our hearts as demonic when we see it happen. Another reason, by the way, for parents not to be ladening their kids with a bunch of rules that they don't need. I'm all for you teaching your kids to obey. What I'm not for is you ladening your kids with so many rules, it's impossible for them to get through the day without disobeying you. Do you see what I'm saying? Let's have rules. Let's have a few rules. Let's just not overburden our kids with so many rules that every time they turn around, they're breaking a rule. But when you give them a rule, just know it's Satan's strategy to make sure that they disobey. And we should take it as seriously if they came in with a skull full of blood saying, I'm drinking, hail Satan. That's how you should view this. That crazy? Okay. That's a little over the top. But at least you need to see that this is a text telling us that the act of rebelling against authority is its a demonic sin. It's like the sin of divination. Okay? Usurping dad's authority and leadership in the home. Prompting adultery whenever that can happen. He wants that. Inciting rebellion, disobedience, particularly with our children. One more. 1 John 3. Let's go to this one. This hasn't been a happy lecture, has it? I'm sorry. You are studying Satan. You know, what, do you, what, what did you expect? A happy, happy sermon? 
1 John 3. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. 1 John 3, 11 and 12. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. By the way, he loves to call them brothers in this text. I know this is about relationships in the church, but keep reading. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. There's another name of Satan, right? Talking about the devil here. And murdered his own brother. Why did he do that? Why did he murder him? Because his, his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Okay? Now think about this. Not just disobedience to parents. You know what Satan would love to have in your home? What he wants in the church. Spiritually, he'd love for us to have jealousy, envy, strife, rivalry. He'd love to have your children. If you have more than one, it's a possibility to promote that conflict. And the most deep-seated conflict in a home with children is not just, he stepped on my foot, he pulled my hair, you know, she stuck her tongue out at me. It's when there's genuine jealousy between children. That's the worst kind. It's the kind that invokes, at least in the first brotherly relationship, a murder. And certainly brings out, as an experienced father at this point, the worst in our kids when there's a genuine rivalry prompted on preference, privilege, success versus one kid's failure. And again, when you see that happening and forming in your home, just know that there's a spiritual dimension to this. There's a satanic strategy behind it all, and we need to fight it. Now again, let's create a prayer list from this. Let's invert this. Look back at it. A, usurping dad's leadership. Let's pray for dad's Dads need to be, be, be leaders in their homes. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for purity in the marriages in our church. Even those that have failed, particularly those that have failed. When there is adultery in the past, there's so much rationalization that it doesn't matter anymore, right? It's already stained. It's already violated. We need to pray for fidelity. We need to pray for kids to obey their parents. Nothing pleases God more. It's the first commandment with a promise. We need to pray that our kids can be pictures of getting along with one another, living harmoniously, just like we should in the church, not like Cain and Abel. There's an agenda that Satan has for your home. Let's fight it by praying against it and doing all that we can to shore up and strengthen our homes. Lastly, and perhaps more, most pertinent to your everyday life, let's talk about Satan's agenda for your life. Five things. I could have listed several more. I had some, but I narrowed had more. I uh, didn't have dozens, but I had m- many more. I want to at least give you five that I think are critical. Let's go to Job, Job chapter 1. And I know you know the story, but it's good to look at exactly what Satan's strategy was here. Now, as I said before, we're looking at this from our perspective. Satan's ultimate agenda is against God. But look at what he's trying to do in the heart of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 9. You know, this comes on the heels of God bragging about Job, which we prefer not happen to us. And Satan answers the Lord and says this, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge, verse 10 says, around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, which, by the way, he loves to do when we are obedient and godly. If we do his word, we're blessed in what we do. He just loves to bless his obedient children. And his possessions have increased in the land. But here's the proposition to God. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will... Here's what you need to underline. Here's the goal of Satan. It's ultimately a front against God, but look at what he wants in the heart of Job. He will curse you to your face. He'll turn his eyes up to the sky and he'll curse you. Now look at the temptress in his life, which ended up being his own wife, right? After everything went wrong, what does she say? Curse God and just give it up and die. That's the goal. Satan was involved in his wife's life. Satan was involved in the whole process of pain to get him to curse God. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that you have is in his hand, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him don't stretch out your hand later. He even rescinds that and allows him to go after his health. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I put it this way not just turn from, but notice how I worded it. He wants to get you to turn on God. 
He wants you to turn on God. Now, I know a lot of you have that successfully accomplished in some period of your life and you never run to your pastors, but there are a lot that do. One of the most painful things that we see in our church as pastors is people coming to us and they're not just disappointed in God, they are angry at God. They have turned at God. They shake their fist at God. I've seen this so many times and it is so heart-wrenching and to me, I've got to say, man, look at the book of Job. Don't you see that this is the goal? It's not for just to despair. It's not just for you to be frustrated. It's not just for you to walk away from the church. It's for you to look up and curse God. He'd love to get you there. And his strategy, as you know the book of Job in the first two chapters, is to take away the blessings of God in your life, which God sometimes allows. He does. He says, okay, go for it to get you sick, to see how you're going to deal with that. What's Satan's goal in the midst of your struggles to get you to turn on God? Yeah. Yeah. The old saying, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Remember that? Here is God giving us all the good things that we have, and Satan tries to get us to turn on him. And the good news was, at least after the first couple of chapters, Job does not sin against God. He doesn't bring any complaint against God. He endures. But it didn't stay that way for the next 30 chapters. Things take a turn for the worse. I don't know where you've been on the temptation scale of that. I think all of us have been pushed in that direction. Um, just know when you're tempted and you feel it, this is not just innate or an, an, organic, or an, or an organic part of your being. This is an external temptation of your life. First Chronicles 21. These will be all over the map, but I think they're all practical. That's the one that pained me most as I thought through all the passages that dealt with Satan and God and, and, and people. I thought, yeah, that would be the ultimate you know, prize for Satan, to get you to some point shake your fist at God. But here's something much, much, much more subtle that I think all of us have fallen to to some degree. Maybe you haven't, and that's good. But nevertheless, we need to know it is a, it is a strategy of Satan. This is First Chronicles, not First Corinthians, you know, right? First Chronicles 21. Go all the way back to First Chronicles. Chronicles, of course, tracks the southern kings of Israel the line of Christ. It skips all the discussions of the northern kings, as first and second kings does. Actually, it overlaps second Samuel, first and second kings. Tracks David's line. So a lot about David in First Chronicles. In chapter 21, look at verse 1. And Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, the commander of the army, go and number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and give me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said he immediately recognized the problem. May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king? All of them, my Lord's servants, they're ready to fight for you. They're your people. They're your army. Come on. Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Now, this is subtle, and it may not be clear on the surface, but there is something that Satan would love to get you to do that David was doing here that Joab could so easily see, and that is getting you to shift your trust and rely on your resources. He would like you to take stock in your life and say, whoo, I'm glad the savings account got there. I'm glad we got that raise and finally we can, we can rest sure. And I, you know, I got a clean bill of health at the doctor and whoo, isn't that great? Yes, now I can be fine about my future planning or planning that retirement. All of the things that we tend to rely on, a king relied on his army, a king relied on how many people he had to fight the neighboring hostile nations. And David was incited, it says, by Satan, the opponent of God, to count all of his money, if you will, and count it all again. And Joab says, man, you got, you're fine. You don't need it. What did David say early in his career? He wrote psalms like this. Hey, victory's not found in horses or chariots, not in the number of troops. Victory belongs to the Lord. Do you think he cared as he took his slingshot and ran at Goliath? Didn't care about armies and armor. He said, I don't know, I'm not going to bother with that. 
Do you see the difference between where David was trusting fully in God to where he is later in life? And I say that to those of you that are older, you're 50, 60, pushing 70. Where's your trust? The older you get, the more a temptation this is, and it comes from Satan. Are you worried? Stop it. God does not want you to put your trust in your stuff, your resources, your money, your health. I always picture when David does this, a guy counting his money over and over again. Call it a sensitive conscience, but I don't like counting my money in my wallet. I just don't. Just like, it's never much anyway, and it's always less when I count it. I just don't even want to count it. I just want to make sure I have some in there. Because, you know, I might need that, so God, I need some. I don't even like doing that. I always think of David's sin here. Relying on your resources. This is related, it's inverted, and for some it's more of a poignant way to put it because it's the language we speak, perhaps. We don't talk a lot about relying on resources, maybe, but we do use these words. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is complementary to, to letter B. If we rely on Christ, which is the essence of our faith. We say we trust Him for eternity. You say that the day you, you lie there on your deathbed, you're going to trust Him to be in His presence with no condemnation. That's what you say you trust Him for, and we can't trust Him for what's coming up next month, next year, or next quarter. Right? This is an, an affront to the God we say we trust. And sometimes we're always trying to count our, our chickens and our eggs and our money our resources, but inverting that, here is the evidence of our lack of trust. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore, now we often get this out of context, but let's get this here. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that, you may at, that He may at the proper time, God may at the proper time, exalt you. Okay, now think about this. He's going to exalt you. Casting your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Okay, the emphasis here is trusting God to get me through, put me out of this problem, whatever it might be, making sure I'm not, trust, I'm not anxious, but I'm trusting Him. He cares. i got to know that. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, wait a minute. If you're trying to make me feel better, that doesn't do it, right? Because that, that is the problem. This is Satan's strategy. What is? Verse 7 that I would be anxious, that I don't remember that He cares for me because of my problems and I'm not exalted. Keep reading. It'll become clear. Resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But before you're restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established, you need to trust. Don't let Satan attack you. Know that people everywhere are experiencing the things that you're experiencing. Smyrna, or whoever might be suffering. Think about that now. So what's the strategy here? Sometimes we miss this. It's that Satan wants us to live anxious. He wants us to live worried. He wants us to be people who in our hearts do not feel at rest in the reality that God cares for us, that we are His children, that the suffering is not indicative of God's hatred toward us. See? Critically important. Now that is God's discipline notwithstanding. Sometimes His discipline clearly is to get us to come to our senses and know that we're sinning, Hebrews 12. And so we need to distinguish discipline from suffering, the kind of suffering that happens to brothers all over the world when Satan unleashes whatever he unleashes on us, but his goal may not be successfully to get us to shake our fist at God, but it may very well be to instill in our hearts a kind of anxiety that we need to get over. Now, probably one of the most classic texts in all the New Testament on spiritual warfare. Let's go to Ephesians 6 and spend just a few closing minutes in this text. Ephesians chapter 6. I mean, I hope in reading all these texts, there's a sense that, yeah, I mean, you can resonate with this. I wrote an article, I think it was in the bulletin last week, on there's more to the world and reality than meets the eye. Was that this last week? Did you read that? Or is that just me that writes those and nobody reads those? You know, the naturalist, the, you know, the, the person that thinks, that the empiricist, the only person that thinks that all there is to this world is what we see. I mean, this almost sounds crazy to them. But I think for those of us that understand the fight, the struggle, the spiritual battles that we face, 
And we know it's more than just, as I've said a couple times, happenstance and circumstance and chance. But there's a battle going on. This has just become so obvious. And as I started in my opening prayer in verse number 11 in chapter 6 of Ephesians, there is a battle going on that he calls us to engage in by getting ready with what he calls here metaphorically our armor. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 11, that you may be able to stand against, the whole point of this, is the schemes of the devil. There it is again, the way he plans and thinks and the way he devises some kind of thing against us. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not the real problem. It's not your hormones. It's not your, you know, your life. It's not just your manager, the people, the neighbors. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, you may be able to withstand, rather, the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Do you know it? Are you clinging to it? Does it gird up your life? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, are you striving, as the Bible calls us to, toiling in all the power that works within us to do what is right, to be righteous? And having our, sh- our feet shone, the, the, uh, the shoes, rather, of your feet, uh, having, uh, and having shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, The gospel, this picture of these shoes that allow us to stand firm. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Trust God. A lot of the things we've even listed here are about do I trust Him in the practical areas of my life with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's going to attack us. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit according to what He wants the things that he's revealed in the book that he wrote with all prayer and supplication. At that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He calls us to the gospel. He calls us to righteousness. He calls us to prayer. He calls us to the scripture, to the truth. These are the things that keep us prepared to fight. Those are the things we often relate to sanctification. Someone who's sanctified moves from the, 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 the milk toast verses, if you will, of the Bible to the meat, to the people that pray and, and, and put a few scant thoughts and words out to God before they go to bed, to those that really, as Paul said of Epaphroditus, they wrestle and toil in their prayers for other people. People that don't just uh, do a few good things to feel better about themselves, but live a life of righteousness for the glory of God. They're zealous for good works people that understand the gospel and stand firm in their acceptance before God because they know that Christ accomplished that. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we fight for. And Satan would love to push us away from those, to make those not happen. I know that's a big term and it involves a lot, but I wanted a catch-all word and, and text to help us recognize that if you're struggling in the word, if you're struggling in evangelism, if you're struggling in good works, if you're struggling in prayer, whatever it might be, your time in the Word, these are spiritual battles that we've got to step up and fight in the strength that God supplies. Now invert this just like you inverted the others and make this your prayer list. God, I never want to turn on you. I never want to shake my fist at you. I never want to trust in my resources. God, help me not to be anxious or worried. Let me cast my cares on you in prayer and let me make sure that I'm taking seriously the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life that would prevent me from losing ground in my progress in sanctification. Great prayer lists. I know these are negative points, but if you invert them all, hopefully it will present you with a good strategic prayer list this week. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks that you haven't given us a book that is void of the strategies of the devil. They're spelled out for us and if we take a little time to systematically knead them out and put them on a piece of paper we can see what you want to do to our church we can see what you want to do to our families and our homes and we can see what you want to do in our lives today and tonight and tomorrow and this week you want to accomplish the opposite of what we've seen here from our enemy you want to see establish the exact opposite of what satan wants to undo in our lives so give us god the wherewithal as we are not ignorant, we're not 
foolishly just cruising through our Christian life thinking that we don't have to be vigilant or careful or thoughtful, but that we need to be entrusting ourselves to you and working and praying through each of these elements, each of these strategies. If we were in a war right now, a physical war, we'd want to know, we'd have to have intelligence that we might be able to counter the attack and to launch a counterattack on our enemy. And, and God, sometimes we never take the time to think through, what does Satan want from my life today? What does he want in my church this year? What would he like to do in my family? So God, give us that, not that we would become preoccupied with every little nuance of how he might be doing in that, but that we might be aware that when we see the temptation, we link it to something much more nefarious and big and, and, and demonic than just uh, a passing thought or a passing uh, opportunity or a, you know, a simple uh, you know, shift of my, my focus. Let us realize these are real temptations because they are revealed strategies of the enemy. So get us ready, God, please, to fight these things for your glory and give us success in them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.